You're listening to the AK Ledger Podcast with John Arono and Craig Tootman. All right, everybody, welcome back to the podcast, which you may notice is no longer the Alaska Commons podcast, and it is no longer, as if it ever actually was, sponsored by the Anchorage Press. So welcome to the first edition of the AK Ledger podcast. The cast is same, the skepticism, cynicism, pessimism. uh, More, more, more of all of that. All that, all that. Uh, I am John Arono, alongside me is... Craig Tootin. And uh, we are we we do a bunch of different reasons. This is our first podcast. I think I got sick one week. I think I was traveling one week, or I think maybe who knows, shit happened. And here we are. So <laughs> thank you for being here. Um, we pick up in the middle. Uh, I think this is day thirty-six, right? Day forty-six. <laughs> day ninety thousand four hundred <laughs> and pi. Uh, of this legisl- <laughs> legislative session, which, as we know, uh, is voter mandated to be 90 days. Insert laugh track here. <laughs> uh, totally has to be 120 days and will likely be 7,463, give or take. Right now, we've been, we've been focusing, as the legislature has, uh, primarily on the let's call it a budget. Uh, proposed by Governor Michael J. Dunleavy as his stationary attributes, which, of course, he came out, he he released a website, called it an honest budget, uh, said he was going to take a brand new approach, break everything down, start all the numbers from zero and build a brand new budget. And that was his opening salvo. Everybody was expecting the world to, to, to crumble a little bit. And boy, how he did it. <laughs> it did, but n- not in the way that that people expected. Certainly not in the way that I expected. Um, I, when it, um, when we were waiting for uh, February thirteenth, I mean, it really felt like doomsday. Um, but th- yeah, I actually um, I lost sleep the night before. I have no not, doubt. Not because, like, I talked to other people and they were like, "Yeah, I stayed up. I couldn't sleep because you know I just didn't." And to me. I watched Breaking Bad before bed because <laughs> that is my life right now. That's my happy place. Uh, and I couldn't sleep because I knew it was going to be bad. It was just a matter of how bad and in what ways. And the answer, of course, the next morning was all of them. Yes and no. Um, the The thing that I was really concerned about um, were serious structural changes um, to state government top to bottom. Um, but I think what ended up happening is that uh, Office of uh, Management and Budget Director Donna Ardwin uh, ran into the Alaska Constitution um, and realized that that's not possible without the involvement of the legislature. So instead, they held the budget to the last moment they possibly could, which was day 30, released it, and the cuts um, that are proposed are are pretty um, pretty ridiculous, but you don't see the structural change that I, I think a lot of people had feared. It really just comes down to um, laughably large cuts to um, the formula programs like public education and Medicaid. It is super interesting just from a constitutional aspect or, or standpoint um, 
we have a strong executive. We were constitutionally designed to have a strong executive. Donna Ardwin, every, everybody's favorite new Alaskan, by all accounts. <laughs> uh, Dunleavy's hired gun for Office of Management and Budget. She uh, spent time in Florida under Jeb. Uh, and also in California, California yeah. uh, Illinois, Schwarzenegger, Illinois, Michigan, uh, been been all over. Uh, Hatchet Man is a nickname that we did not make up. Uh, <laughs> it has just been described many a times, affixed to her name, and she's proud of it. Her Twitter handle and Instagram account is Budget Lady, and she has a record of going in, drastically changing things. But given the powers that the executive has. And the fact that the legislature, just cold hard numbers, uh, Senate, overwhelmingly Republican, same party as the governor. House, there are more Republicans than Democrats and independents in the House. Uh, but the legislature has been put in a position where uh, a lot of them are kind of taking the approach now of, OK, the budget is up to us now. Uh, it's it's fairly clear. And these were comments especially made in uh, a press availability by Senate Democrats, Jesse Keel from Juneau, Tom Begich from Anchorage, and L.V. Gray Jackson, also from Anchorage, all Democrats, um, basically saying that, you know, the governor's kind of, he came out with the strong opening salvo of this is the budget, we're changing things, we're shaking up the system, this is what Alaskans want, because uh, we all know that 100% of Alaskans voted for this. Uh, and they're saying, no, we're just going to have to start all over. It's up to the legislature to get this done. And, and that's kind of the approach they are taking to it. That's definitely, I think, what coalesced in uh, the new House coalition, which came together, which, you know, I'm sorry, but Tammy Wilson and Harriet Drummond are not natural best friends. This, <laughs> um, I talked to numerous legislators and before the budget or before the coalition came a better together, uh, there were Republicans who would behind the scenes say, well, I will not caucus with this person. And there were Democrats saying, I will not caucus with this person. Um, great Venn diagram. David Eastman was the overlap. Um, Shocking. But uh, the coalition that ended up, there are a lot of people who swore they would not work with other members. And they are now absolutely in bed together now with kind of the, the overwhelming task of um, saving the state from the proposed budget which this week has been walked back a little bit, I think, by the governor, starting to say, you know, this is a conversation starter. <laughs> well, then, it wasn't the honest budget that you started out with, if you're saying that it's now a conversation starter 35 days into it. No, he he really has sort of abdicated his constitutional responsibility um, to, to craft a budget. On December 15th, he put out the budget that uh, former Governor Bill Walker had put out, which is uh, typical in a in a transition year, uh, to put out your predecessor's budget. Um, but he he said, you know, something's coming. Be prepared. This is it's not going to look anything like this budget. Again, sat on it for the first thirty days of session, and then put out this budget that's indefensible. It doesn't have economic analysis to back it up, and. Uh, so, as you say, the legislature pretty much has to craft the budget themselves now, which is not the legislature's constitutional responsibility. That's the responsibility of the governor. And you had an interesting piece earlier this week about uh, David Teal, um, who is the expert in the legislature on, on all things uh, finance and, and, and budget related. Kind of, uh, I think the word uh, he used was chaos. 
uh, to describe the budget. Can you tell us a little bit about his perspective? The kind of it's not exactly what you expected. I mean, not only someone in his position, but him personality-wise, it's not what you would expect to, to come from him. No, uh, David Teal just does not editorialize um, ever. And this is about the closest that he, he's ever come. Um, and he he essentially picked apart uh, the Dunleavy administration's claims about having an honest budget. Uh, the budget is uh, supposed to be balanced it's not. It depends on um, seizing at least uh, $400 million of uh, oil or petroleum property taxes, most of which go to the North Slope Borough. Um, it, Shifting the responsibility onto local governments while ta- taking away their uh, overwhelming revenue resource. Right. And that leads into the next point. Um, the idea is that this budget is based on no new taxes, but there's only one way that local governments could respond to this budget, and that is to increase taxes. Um, just for the education cuts alone, uh, the median uh, home in Anchorage would see its property taxes raised by $1,400. Um, so, again, another debunking Um Dunleavy also said that the budget was designed to protect our uh, savings and our our fiscal reserves, um, but he pulls four hundred million dollars uh, out of those reserves to pay oil and gas tax credits and to pay for uh, Medicaid cuts, which can't possibly be realized. And then he hides those Medicaid cuts in the FY 2019 budget, which is the budget that he has, you know, said was just outrageously large. And, you know, so he's pushing um, that budget growth onto his predecessor's budget. Um, it really is to call it an honest budget uh, with a straight face uh, close to the heart of darkness. <laughs> And part of that, uh, part of the budget uh, that's that's really gotten a lot of attention, definitely perked my ears up this week, was a portion, some budget language that would have allowed, I think it's through OMB, right? Yes. Um, to basically shift funds inside of certain departments, uh, carte blanche, essentially. Yeah. Can yep. you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, brace yourself, we're going to get wonky. Okay. Because so, we weren't already there. Right. <laughs> Okay, so the budget is broken down into departments, appropriations, and allocations. So each department has appropriations, and within those appropriations, you have similar allocations. That's the smallest grouping in the budget. Um, So as it stands currently, um, departments can move money between allocations or within a single appropriation as needed. It gives them a little bit of flexibility um, if spending is too high over here and too low over here. What the Office of Management and Budget, namely uh, Director Arduin, has proposed is language for every single department that says, not only can you move money within appropriations as the executive branch, you can move it anywhere within a department. Um, so if 
the legislature were to fund a program that the Dunleavy administration doesn't like, they can essentially zero out that program without a veto after the fact and move it to a program that they do like. It, it pulls the appropriating power um, vested in the legislature by the Constitution from the legislature and transfers it to the executive, which, as you've pointed out, is already a very strong executive under the Constitution. And that's the the huge part where I think I, I've heard a lot of, um, uh, let's say, either naive or, or misguided interpretations of this, where they quote the strong executive and they say that, well, he has a line, line item, veto power. This is different. This is abjectly different. This is the power of appropriation, which is constitutionally given, vested in the legislature. This is not line item veto where you can withhold funding from a certain project. This is taking funding that has been uh, appropriated or allocated to a certain um, subset of a department and give it to, I think, uh, I liked your analogy that you used within the Department of Administration uh, for public broadcasting. Yeah, Dunleavy has proposed, and this is this is not new um, for anybody that, that watched him when he was in the Senate Finance Committee, uh, he had the Department of Administration subcommittee, and he always zeroed out um, public broadcasting. He always had the Department of Education and Early Development, and he always zeroed out uh, pre-kindergarten programs like Parents as Teachers, Best Beginnings. Um, he, he has consistently done that. So when he gets into the governor's office, he proposes zeroing out public broadcasting. So... If he were to, uh, or if the legislature were to restore those funds and the governor exercised his constitutional authority, did a line item veto, and then the legislature went back in and overrode that veto, if this language were to stay in the budget, allowing OMB to move funds anywhere within a department then after all of those constitutional moves are out of the way, then OMB comes in and says, no, I don't care that the legislature has overridden this veto. We're going to zero out public broadcasting anyway, and we're going to move this to IT, which is also in the Department of Administration and is something that, that Governor Dunleavy supports. So, there, I mean, the the emphasis there is there doesn't have to be any congruence uh, usually you know if if um if funding is taken from one place to another there has to be some sort of reasoning behind it there has to be some sort of explanation this is literally just giving the governor the option of well i don't like that so i'm going to take complete control and authority over these funds and give it to something that i will either give it to something that i want or just actually use the power that I do have and, and line item veto it. Yeah, I mean, it's borderline giving the governor a block grant for right. for government and letting him say, you run it however you want. It's cool. So leg, uh, legislative legal uh, looked over it and said, um, hey, guy, it's right here on page 14 of the Constitution. <laughs> um, and in no unequivocal terms, it, it said this is just not permissible. Um, this is something that uh, I've noticed that Arduin did um, 
in a much smaller and 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 in a scope that would actually pass muster here uh and to an extent is done here in terms of uh she's gone in in both California, Florida and it was it, Michigan, right? Um where she's made changes to the departments of corrections in those states and she's changed reporting requirements, you know, she's privatized given them to the same uh, company through mergers that has taken over Alaska Psychiatric Institute. Um, she's made it so within that department, there can be any transfer of funds to however they see fit without any reporting to the legislature even. Um, but this is a brand new scope that really, really juts up against uh, precedent and constitution and everything. So there's that. And I'm sure we'll be we'll be hearing a lot more about that in the in the near future. Um, another thing that kind of popped up on my radar unexpectedly earlier this week was the 2020 census, um, which we generally view it in political terms. You know, whoever is uh, in control of the governor's office has quite a bit of sway in terms of uh, re- reallocation, reappropriation. Uh, reapportionment, sorry, a uh, bunch of R words. Uh, and that results in, you know, we have a redistricting redistricting board. Governor gets uh, two appointees on that. Senate president gets an appointee. Uh, that happens to be a Republican this year. House speaker gets an appointee. And then the Supreme Court, uh, state Supreme Court justice uh, is the fifth vote in, in the case of a tie. Um, the thing that we don't really think about with the census is every year, that is tied to over $375 billion in federal funding that goes to programs uh, in the states. Um, in Alaska, that represents over 70 different programs, uh, trying to figure out what areas it needs to go to, where it's most beneficial, where it's most representative, where it is, where it's going to help. Unfortunately, uh, we had this 35-day government shutdown starting on uh, New Year's Eve. And as a result, they have been slower, a lot slower in hiring staff, uh, the staff which is going to be translated into canvassers going out into rural Alaska, places off the road system, uh, and because we need an accurate headcount. We need to know where people are, who they are, where they live, et cetera, et cetera. Also happens to be one of those things that Alaskans tend to really hate. Um, and <laughs> no, no, Alaskans not into be, stand up and be counted. No, <laughs> um, usually the census is a ten-year process. This year, it's been delayed because of funding issues, because of a lot of nonprofits that usually uh, pick up some of the slack when the federal government and state government isn't contributing as, as much. A lot of the nonprofits have kind of stood out because of budgetary woes. The state, uh, obviously, Governor Dunleavy is not in a mood to devote a lot of state resources to the census. So what we're going to have over the summer, especially heating up in June and July and then uh, culminating in August, uh, is going to be those canvassers going out. Usually what you have are advanced materials, people letting you know that canvassers are going to be coming, how you can uh, 
mitigate that by replying online or through mail or through all sorts of different contacts. That's not going to happen this year. The advanced materials are not going to get out there. So the first so somebody just shows up at your door. That is the first point of contact <laughs> nice. in the 2020 U.S. Census. Which, speaking as a person who uh, once worked for a cable company up here, which <laughs> my advice is always is never do that. Um, people do not like a unmarked figure showing up at your door asking you for information. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have a lot of stories that involve guns being pulled and, and uh, insults being cast about. Uh, it's, it's not a pleasant thing. Um, but again, if we don't get an accurate count, that ties indirectly to programs that are very necessary to Alaska, to Alaskans not getting funded or not getting funded in the right place or the right ways. Um we have a big issue. Another huge issue with that is even some of the advanced materials, even for people who uh, are going to get the survey for the census through mail uh, or, you know, picking it up at the library or any other place, um, the surveys are adopted uh, via federal requirements in terms of language. That Because it's federal, the cutoff is there have to be 60,000 households nationwide that speak a certain language, which cuts out every single Alaska native language. Wow. So uh, in some states, again, this is where state governments plug that hole with local funds to fund translations. We're not doing that. So we're going to have a hard to reach population that's resistant in the first place to outsiders coming in, knocking on their door and saying, hi, I'd like to put your name in a registry. Uh, and we're not even going to have them able to do that in a language that they understand. So our state laws require uh, ballots to be translated into any number of Alaska native languages, but the census won't meet that requirement. Exactly. Fine. And, uh, you know, I know everybody's excited about super, supersized on steroids PFD checks, but just to put it in perspective, the funding that Alaska gets annually from the federal government tied to different programs through the U.S. census data is over $4,000 per person. So that is a lot of money that we are potentially going to screw the pooch on because we have not prepared and we're not ready to deal with the census. Well, and to look at it through a political lens, the first election that's going to be impacted is going to be 2022, um, which is going to be a gubernatorial election in Alaska. Um, the redistricting board is already likely to tilt um in favor of republicans because governor dunleavy gets those two seats and then uh senate president Giesel gets a third mm -hmm. um and if you are undercounting uh rural alaskans especially alaska natives in particular which they were we should also just for historical context uh the 2010 sentence uh, rural Alaska was already 8% undercounted. <laughs> so we're already starting from, from a less than advantageous point. Well, that that uh, that 2010 census um, threw um, a ton of, of weight behind the Matsu, which is 
nobody questions the fact that it's the fastest growing part of the state. But if uh, rural Alaska is being undercounted, then Matsu gets even more political weight. And then you're you're talking about disproportionate um, impact in the legislature and then 10 years of laws that could um, disregard the rural Alaskans that never got counted. Yeah, and also people really rely on the internet and kind of think that these magics, uh, these these numbers for population uh, appear magically. It's not the case. We like to think about things in very uh, concise, um, you know, chronological terms, but every source of vital statistics that we have, whether it's crime data, whether it's, you know, uh, diversity data, you know, um, it all stems from the U.S. Census, and we are really handicapping ourselves for a decade to come if we screw this up. So on that bright note, <laughs> uh, this week, since we are back, I neither of us wanted to uh, get back started without a good interview for you. Uh, we are lucky enough this week to have the legislative liaison. This is such a mouthful, and I botch it when I introduce her, which you'll hear in 10 seconds, but uh, the <laughs> legislative liaison uh, for Planned Parenthood votes Northwest and Hawaii, Allison Curry. Uh, she was nice enough to give us a call from Juno, where she has been sitting in front of legislators damn near every day. Yeah, busy, busy lady. Uh, and so we sat down to talk about some of the stuff that Planned Parenthood is concerned about and that is on the table uh, in front of the legislator, uh, legislature. So check this out. Joining me on the phone now is Allison Curry. Allison, what is your official title with Planned Parenthood Votes? Is it is it Planned Parenthood Votes Northwest or is it a longer name that I'm botching? It is a longer name. Now it's Planned Parenthood Votes Northwest in Hawaii. Um, I typically, when I introduce myself or when I testify in committees, I'll just say Planned Parenthood votes. Okay. But Northwestern Hawaii is our official affiliate, and I am our legislative liaison for Alaska and live in Juneau. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming on and, and uh, being with us on the podcast. I I want to get in touch with you just because I feel like I see you testifying every other day on Gavel at this point. Uh, so... <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to get your sense uh, with your position. What was your first impression when you saw the proposed budget from uh, Governor Dunleavy? Well, I would say first reaction was similar to most everybody else's, that the cuts are devastating, mm -hmm. um, in particular the cuts to Medicaid and the Department of Health and Social Services. I mean, those cuts are going to devastate our health care system. Um, Cuts to education and the university system also devastating. And actually, a couple of weeks ago, we did have our teen council program, which is a peer-led sex ed um, group of high school students, and mm -hmm. then a couple activists um, from University of Alaska Anchorage and Fairbanks who were up at the Capitol and meeting with their legislators about those cuts and asking their representatives to oppose Dunleavy's cuts. I know that one thing that I've been looking at a lot is uh, cuts to Medicaid. I mean, we're a state with, you know, over, I think, uh, I mean, half the state pretty much in one way or another is affected by Medicaid. 
Uh, and one of the bills currently before the legislature is Senate Bill 7, sponsored by uh, Peter Machicki, Republican from Soldotna. He's trying to impose Medicaid work requirements. Um, and he's his claims that it's the bill's more about opportunity, about breaking a negative cycle, getting people more, uh, you know, required to be applying for jobs, doing job recruitment and training. But a lot of people, yourself included, have pointed out kind of flaws in the logic behind the actual policy. I wonder if you could go through your concerns with us. Yeah, I mean, our take on this, and this is also because research shows that work requirements don't actually improve people's health. Um, it doesn't improve people's access to health care, and it does not improve their financial standing, particularly if you live in a place that doesn't have job opportunity or, like, Senator Machicki's bill includes opportunity, I guess, to um, do 20 hours of volunteer work or just 20 hours of job training or applying for jobs. Um, but if you do live in an area where there aren't volunteer opportunities or job opportunities, then you're at risk of still losing your health care coverage, even though there's no job availability for you to meet those requirements. Another, um, another side effect of this could be people who actually do meet some of the exemption eligibilities the bill is really vague about how how to meet those exemptions. Is mm -hmm. there going to be additional paperwork necessary? And so what could happen is that people who actually are eligible to continue to stay on Medicaid would then just get kicked off because they didn't sign and submit their paperwork in time to prove their eligibility. So some of the most vulnerable Alaskans that Senator Machiki is trying to protect would, in fact, instead be kicked off Medicaid and lose their health care coverage because they didn't fill out their paperwork. Um, also, we're just, we don't support anything that is punitive. Mm -hmm. So there are other states, and I think some people... There were a couple of people who testified and mentioned a program in Montana that actually is a, you know, let's help people get back to work program, but it doesn't kick people off of their health insurance. Which I feel is like <laughs> such an important point, given the fact that, I mean, I know that Senator Michiki and, and supporters of the bill have cited uh, myriad states that have applied for the waiver that was uh, made possible by the Trump administration that would allow these sort of programs to kick in. But at the same time, Arkansas is the only state that I'm aware of that has actually implemented uh, the work requirements. And they saw about 25% of the population that was, uh, that was basically under the scope of the workplace requirements, about 25% of them got kicked out of the role, kicked off the rolls. And mm -hmm. like you were saying, in terms of losing coverage, once you lose coverage, then you have to wait for the next period to even re-enroll. So you're going through right. a large window of time uh, without any coverage. I mean, that is something we should be worried about, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it does make me wonder too, with, let's say if you're a resident of Alaska, but if you've moved recently or you don't, maybe you don't have a mailing address, um, how are you going to be notified? There could be people who just get kicked off 
the rules and not even know and until they go to their next doctor's visit and then realize they don't have insurance to cover the service. And that was and that was another concern of that in terms of a lot of the communities. When you're talking about the uh, about twenty two thousand Alaskans who are Medicaid recipients that that would be affected by this, you know, that's mostly not going to be people on in the rail belt. That's not Anchorage. That's not Fairbanks. That's going to be rural Alaska, where a lot of these places don't have health clinics that are readily readily accessible, where you can even go to get the physician's note proving that you have an exemption. Um, mm-hmm. it, it seems like there's a lot of problems and do you, uh, how do you feel about the phrasing in terms of this bill not being about cost savings? Because one thing that took me by, uh, I don't know, it struck me was that, uh, the fiscal note attached to it expected about 20% of the affected population every year would be kicked off the rolls. I don't know. It, it seems like it's, it's hard to say that. This isn't a cost-saving cost measure when the fiscal notes, including a year a yearly outlook in terms of people that they're expecting being kicked off the rolls because of failing to meet the requirement. Yeah, I think, I mean, there are just a lot of problems with the bill. And we've heard the Senate or the bill sponsor say that he, like, he even recognizes that this is not a cost-savings bill, that this is something the state is going to have to pay extra money um, and on the back for end. bureaucracy. Yeah, on the back end, and we've seen that in Arkansas. So I think the latest that I read is that 18,000 people were kicked off of the rolls, but the state is paying over $370 million for that, and then there's going to be long-term costs associated with um, public health issues. So if that amount of people are no longer getting health care, then you could have um, just see spikes and other um, public health statistics that aren't positive that then cost the state more money to try to resolve. Mm-hmm. And in Alaska, we already have the highest rates of a lot of things that aren't great that I know you're familiar with. You know, we have um, sexually transmitted infection rates that are astronomically high, um, mental health, depression, suicide, domestic violence, sexual assault, and all of these things come at a cost. Every list state. you don't want to be on, we're, we're at the top. Yeah, we're on. <laughs> pretty much. And so it really, just the logic, um, I don't understand um, particularly that this bill is providing opportunity when there's nothing in the bill that actually is increasing job growth and training and skills opportunities to connect people who currently are on Medicaid and who aren't working but able to work. Um, there's there's a disconnect mm-hmm. between those two things. Yeah, very much so. Do you have any projections in terms of uh, right now it looks like it's stuck in uh, the Senate uh, Health and Social Services Committee. Um, I have to believe it has the votes to pass out of that committee. It probably has the votes mm-hmm. to pass out of the Senate. Um, do you have any thoughts mm-hmm. on its prospects in the House? I mean, I know it would likely be going to House Health and Social Services where it would have to get by representatives, uh, co-chairs, um, Ivy Sponholtz and Tiffany mm-hmm. Zolkowski. Do you have any thoughts on, on its prospects in the House? 
In the House, I would imagine if the bill stays as is, if it stays as a work requirement bill, because it is the bill will be up in Senate Hess again tomorrow. They'll be taking up amendments. So it'll be interesting to see if there are drastic changes to the bill. I think if there's still a punitive component, it's not. I don't even know if it would get a hearing in the House. So mm-hmm. that is my projection. However, the concern is even if it dies in the House, let's say if it does go through the Senate, dies in the House, this is something that the governor can pursue on his own, I believe. I don't think he needs legislative approval to for the Department of Health and Social Services to apply for a demonstration waiver. Right. Well, that's a somber note to end on that subject, uh, but it does yeah. <laughs> it does it, it does yeah. segue in, into another subject uh, that also has to do with um, Department of Health and, and Social Services regulations that can be done at the government or governor's level, uh, which was something that Governor Sean Parnell did, uh, which was change DHSS policy back in 2013 to define medically necessary abortions and and Medicaid reimbursements for those which ended up in a court challenge uh, between the DHSS policy and a uh, bill, Senate Bill 49, passed in 2013 by Senator John Coghill, uh, which ended up in a court challenge, and you were one of the named parties in that. It was Alaska v. Planned Parenthood of the Great Northwest, and you had a ruling uh, in your favor recently. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, the, the Supreme Court struck it down. I don't know if there's anything else that can be said, but they um, they agreed with the Superior Court um, that the bill and the regulations were unconstitutional because it violated the, um, oh gosh, this is embarrassing, the, I think, the equity clause, equality, yeah, I don't know, equal, equal rights equality. Clause, yes. <laughs> yes, thank you. Equal rights protections, basically saying that, well, you know, women... Uh, uh, people who wanted to terminate their pregnancy but did not have the funding to do it out of pocket were similarly situated as someone who did. Um, you know, so you couldn't. It, it, it. There was no compelling state interest uh, to uphold to what they considered a discrimination, uh, dis- discriminatory policy. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, this was. This is something that it seems like every year there is a court challenge similar to this uh you know if, if you just google alaska v planned parenthood um you get mm-hmm. 20 years of casework um <laughs> and, and the 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 thing that i find interesting is the precedent and the rulings that eventually occur have not differed wildly i mean it it generally goes to this same uh upholding that um you have to treat uh every decision in terms of um, terminating a pregnancy, the same, and and this court, this this ruling seemed a little different to me in terms of this was a really expansive forty nine page ruling. Justice Carney, um, you know, basically she said the state has not shown any differences that affected classes that justified the the discriminatory treatment. Um, went so far as to point out that it actually costs the state more to carry a pregnancy to term. Um, this, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it was broad enough where, it, to me personally, it read like the justices, with the exception of um, uh, Stowe, who was the lone dissent, um, it really seemed like the justices were trying to say, 
stop it. We have made this decision already. Stop trying to relitigate this. Stop trying to legislate this. Um, mm-hmm. Did you have a similar takeaway to that? Because it really, to me, it, it felt like, you know, hey, guys, you know, hey, legislature, there's we would like a degree of finality here. Well, I think that was the sentiment when Senate Bill 49 passed in 2014. I believe that was the third attempt. Mm-hmm to pass something like this, and so the courts had already ruled twice, right. I think a decade prior, um, that it was unconstitutional, yet the legislature continues to try. And then, again, like you said, the Parnell administration through regulation as well. And they, again, maybe third time, I mean, fingers crossed, third time's a charm, <laughs> um, they'll stop, but I, I, I don't see that happening. I just, knowing... Uh, Governor Dunleavy's ideological agenda and some other members of the legislature, which I don't, I don't actually feel like there is a super majority of um, at least anti-abortion extremists, mm. I would call them. I mean, there might be a majority of those who identify as pro-life um, think, and who I might not be Planned Parenthood supporters, but I don't think there is a stronghold in both bodies in the legislature that are that extreme. We, and want to actually focus on criminalizing abortions. Yeah, I think I think there's a good split of people who are tired of talking about it. But I, I mean, I think that the, the the overall makeup of the legislature, on the record, has gone, you know, has has said that they're pro life. But we do have an interesting dichotomy of one of the most ardent anti choice. Uh, members of the legislature happens to have ascended to the governor's office, um, mm-hmm. which is the the last topic that I really wanted to cover with you is the pick for Attorney General uh, Clarkson, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. who, you know, I'd mentioned the litany of cases that bear the name Alaska v. Planned Parenthood, uh, whether it's those, whether it's, uh, you know, prohibitions against marriage equality, uh, mm-hmm. Kevin Clarkson has had his name attached to those bills going all the way back to the mid-1990s. In fact, the legislature hired him to come up with the language that resulted in the constitutional marriage ban that we had for so long. And and he worked up until the Obergefell decision. He was part of that as well. Um, mm-hmm. I know you testified uh, during the public testimony uh, period um, stating your and Planned Parenthood's opposition to him as being attorney general. Um, I know there was some pushback. I know uh, Representative Gabriella Du kind of pushed you on it. Um, what, in terms of, you know, the Constitution's pretty, uh, it, you know, it's not as um, illustrative of what criteria, what criteria there is for an attorney general. It really just says, you know, uh, they serve at the pleasure of the governor. Um what is your objection to Kevin Clarkson being in that position, and, and why do you think he should not be confirmed? So in addition to the bulk of his constitutional litigation experience, working actively against abortion rights and working actively against LGBTQ rights, in addition, in his extracurricular time, he also, um, even Jim Minnery himself, has stated that um, Kevin Clarkson is a co-founder of Alaska Family Action. Yes. And so even though um, 
even though Mr. Clarkson was trying to just write off or brush under the rug that, oh, only 10% of my work professional experience um, or workload has been on these quote-unquote controversial social issues. Um, that's not the bulk of my work experience. And I did en- I did, I, that, sorry to interrupt, but I, I did just I did enjoy that because he repeated that in his indu- introductory statements of, of every time he's appeared. And it's all right, guy, you know, I know that, it, mm-hmm. it you know, in terms of pieces of paper compared to pieces of paper, that might be 4%, 5%, 10% of your work, but it's a pretty high profile amount of your work. I mean, that's... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. It is a high profile part of his work. And I think it speaks volumes that in his free time, I mean, this isn't just somebody who has personal beliefs that he is anti-abortion or that he opposes equal rights for the LGBTQ community. He has actively worked against equal rights for women's health care and for the LGBTQ community through his association and work with Alaska Family Action and even his alliance with the Alliance Defending Freedom group as well. So we certainly do not trust that if an anti-abortion bill were to, or let's say an anti-trans piece of legislation, Mm. something passed through the legislature. Which he's had um, his hands into. Yes, yes. Um, And if we took it to the courts and then the courts struck it down, we know as attorney general that the state will appeal with him in that seat. Because we know Dunleavy administration will want to appeal that case. And so they'll just keep wasting the state's money um, trying to defend bills that we already know are unconstitutional. So I guess, I mean, I would, uh, I guess it's it's maybe a philosophical question of, you know, Dunleavy, Governor Dunleavy does have these stated views. He is, uh, you know, he's opposed LGBTQ rights in terms of workplace, housing, credit, etc. Um, he's opposed marriage equality. He's obviously very uh, anti-abortion. Um, should, you know, what what right do we have to uh, tell him that his attorney general has to have views that counter that? How would you argue that? It's a good question. I know, I can't, <laughs> it stumps me too. <laughs> I also don't know, I don't think there's any argument that Mike Dunleavy would listen to. Mm -hmm. I mean, he clearly has his own agenda, and I don't think, so I guess my pushback, or my argument to him would be just fair treatment Mm -hmm. of all Alaskans, no matter what your personal views are. Because we know that the actions of his administration and that the potential future actions of the attorney general would impose greater harm to large portions of our community. And, I mean, if they are denied employment, housing, um, education opportunities, they're denied access to health care because of who they are, I mean, that's just that is blatant discrimination and has a larger impact, Mm -hmm. um, negative impact on those folks. So I guess I would use that as my reasoning to -hmm. argue with them, but I don't think that's something that he would listen to because of, I guess, deeply held religious beliefs. Mm -hmm. I also don't want to put words in his mouth, but um, I'm, I'm not sure how else 
to argue that point and have him see some reason there that we need somebody who is a little bit more balanced Mm -hmm. and moderate in their views and somebody who hasn't been actively in the forefront of opposing these rights. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think... I think it's a good argument to make in terms of if you are serving as attorney general, you're both the uh, uh, governor's council. Ultimately, you're the the state of Alaska's council, and that includes the constituency base. And if you're actively opposing the rights of people, especially backed up by the president of the Supreme Court multiple times, all the way, obviously, with Obergefell and and Roe and and all sorts of things uh, that he's... um, but But I mean... One thing that really stood out to me in his confirmation hearings uh, has been he really likes to use the word, uh, the the phrase at this time. So when people Mm -hmm. have tried to pin him down on, you know, would you fight marriage equality? Would you fight access uh, to abortion? He said, well, no, the the Supreme Court uh, has ruled on that. And that's their opinion at this time. And that to me is a it's not a red flag. It's a flare. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. but I, I have to believe, you know, in those confirmation hearings, I haven't really seen a lot of vocal objection, um, from the people that normally would be, uh, I don't know, voicing that objection. So I, I, I kind of have to believe that he's pretty much got that confirmation on lock. Am I being over cynical there or do you? Kind of. No, I don't think so. I, that is our assessment as well. Um, I mean, we just we have to put our statement out there because mm-hmm. he is such an extreme <laughs> nomination. Um, but we, we've been hearing some other appointments um, say the same thing when they're questioned about the constitutionality of abortion. And um, the answer always is, I will follow the law as it stands now. And we know that they are going to work side by side. I mean, this is why they're taking a job with the Dunleavy administration, because they share his ideology. And we know they're going to work to change that law, whether that's constitutional amendments or whatever is needed to change the law and have it meet their views rather than as it stands now. Yeah. Well, it would appear to me that you are going to have a very busy session for the next however many months it goes. Um, I wish you the best of luck getting through it, all the coffee in the world. uh, (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) And uh, thank you so much for for taking a few minutes to talk to us today. I really appreciate it. Of course. Thank you for having me. Our thanks to Allison Curry for stopping by and talking with us. Uh, before we go this week, I do want to take a moment to thank our sponsors. If you haven't seen it already, if you go to akledger.com, our website, you can read everything that uh, the legislature is up to, as written by me and Craig. And if you look up at the top, you can see a little button that says support, and it will take you to our Patreon page. That's a crowdfunding site where you can donate a monthly amount to help keep us afloat. Remember that the that so far i mean hopefully we're going to get ads at some point but uh for now that that is the only money that we make off of this venture um so i would like to take a moment to thank you to our contributors so far so jedediah smith clint farr sean williams brad keithley don reed slayton christian hartley ben curtis zach roberts andy holloman adam jacobson rebecca barker therese catriona 
Barb Clark, Donna Brandel, thank you all so much. We could not do this without you. Um, please stop by our page, check it out. And uh, if you have any pocket change, uh, you know, send it our way, please. We really appreciate it. As a final note, I know that by the time you hear this, it's not going to be breaking news, but the Fairbanks City Council this week approved a what is referred to as a controversial bill uh, that would extend non-discrimination protections to our LGBTQ family uh, up in Fairbanks. Anchorage has those protections already. I kind of first got interested in local politics because of the fight that we had here in Anchorage in 2009, 10 years ago, over Ordinance 64, which had the same goal to extend equal protections. This is not special rights. All it's doing is saying, if you are gay, if you are lesbian, if you are bisexual, if you are transgender, you can't be fired because of it. You can't be kicked out of your house because of it. You can't be denied credit from a bank. This is really basic stuff. This is basic human dignity, human rights for people being who they are and being allowed to live their life according to who they are. This shouldn't be controversial. Fairbanks City Mayor Jim Matherly defied the 4-2 vote of the city council and he ushered the veto just as Mayor Dan Sullivan did back in 2009 here in Anchorage. Folks, it's 2019. Anchorage Ordinance 64 was 10 years ago. The first ordinance that was passed by the Anchorage Assembly to codify these sort of equal protections was in 1970 frickin' 6. The fact that we're still arguing over this is repugnant. And Jim Matherly is a coward. He's chosen to put it on the ballot. And, and that's the main thing that I wanted to talk about because this happened in Anchorage 2 back in 2009. Anchorage Mayor vetoed it. Uh, the assembly came up one vote shy of overriding the veto, which a 4-2 vote in Fairbanks leaves them one vote shy. This is a mirror image of that. And Matherly's response is, it should be voted on by the public in October, which coincidentally, he's up for re-election. <laughs> Just putting that out there. We found ourselves in the same situation. It turned into Prop 5, which uh, in the midst of a lot of voting irregularities, uh, which you can directly put on the doorstep of Jim Minery, the Alaska Family Council, who uh, very it took a lot of liberties in terms of telling people they could vote on the same day as they registered and all sorts of stuff. A lot of hinkiness that went on there. Um, and I remember opposing Proposition 5, not ultimately, I you know ultimately voted for it because I'm going to try to be a decent human being. Um, but I remember objecting to putting it on the ballot. And I, I mean, I stand by my reasons. This is what legislative bodies are for. You should not subject equal protections, basic fundamental human rights, to the will of the majority. Majorities tend to oppress minorities. That's why we made up those words. But now that that's the situation that they're finding it. And, and I was having a conversation with a friend of mine uh, around 2010, 2011, when, when conversations were starting around Prop 5 in Anchorage, whether we were going to put those sort of equal protections on the ballot. And I got on my damn high horse and I 
you know, straight white cisgender self saying, we should not be voting on this. This is reprehensible. We should not put this on the ballot. And a friend just kind of shut me down. He just looked at the assembly, which was a conservative majority, much more conservative, in fact, at that time than it was in 2009 when Ordinance 64 was voted on. Uh, Dan Sullivan was still mayor. He wasn't going anywhere. It was pretty clear that he was, you know, a shoe in for re-election. His re-election would be on the same ballot as Prop 5. And my friend just looked at me and said, well, what would you have me do? You want me to sit around for the next 30 years and wait till this, till we arrive at some sort of legislative body that has the stomach and the fortitude and the decency to put this up for discussion again? You know, you don't really have a good answer for that. You like to be moral and you like to be righteous and you like to, to stand behind the fact that in a democracy, in a republic, you have uh, legislatures and assemblies and councils that will do the right thing when they see an oppressed minority in need of protections. But either way, Fairbanks City Mayor made a cowardly decision, gutless, spineless, and now it's going to be on the ballot. So... Whether you like it or not, whether it's the just thing to do, whether it's the right thing to do to stick it on the ballot and let the broad public decide whether people should be afforded the same treatment under the law, in the eyes of the law, that the rest of us are, that's where it's going to be. So get ready for it. Show up and vote. So bad on Fairbanks City Mayor Jim Matherly. What the hell, dude? Tighten up. That's it for this week's podcast. I am John Arono alongside Craig Tootin. We will see you next time.